morning if you'd open to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 this morning. One of our deacons told me a story a week or so ago that they claim was true. Now, when a deacon tells you a story, just take it with a grain of salt. It may or may not be true, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. So if it comes back that this was not a true story, don't blame me. I heard it from somebody else whose name I won't repeat, Donnie Sanders. <laughs> there was a pastor search committee that was uh, out looking for a preacher, and they went uh, to hear one particular man preach, and they were very, very impressed with his, with his message, so much so that they invited him to come preach a trial sermon at their church. So a few weeks went by, and he came, preached trial sermon at their church, and he got up, and he began to preach. It didn't take him long before they realized he was preaching the exact same message that he had preached a few weeks prior. They didn't think much about it. They just thought, well, this is one of his favorite ones, one of his best messages. We were really impressed with it, and we think our people will be too. So they went through, they voted, they voted him in as their pastor. Week went by, Sunday came around again as it always does. And he preached again. The same message. I thought, well, that's kind of odd, but uh, he's the pastor. Let him do what he's going to do. Came back the next week, and he preached again the same message. By this time, they're starting to get a little bit concerned. Does this guy only have one sermon? Does he, what, what's the deal here? What's the situation? And he came back again the next week and still one more time, the same message. And finally, the chairman of the search committee had kind of had about all he could take. He said, I've got to get to the root of this thing. Something's going on here. Uh, what have we done here? What's going on? And he went up to the pastor and he said, Pastor, we love you. We love your message but why do you keep preaching the same thing over and over and over again? And the wise pastor said, well, as soon as you guys start practicing what I'm preaching, I'll start preaching something else. Now that's a silly little story this morning, true or not, but it relates to the book of 1 John in a very clear way that as we work through this book together, you're going to begin to find that it's going to sound like, in many ways, I'm preaching the same thing over and over again. Why would that be? Because John is saying the same thing over and over again for five chapters. And so this morning what you're going to see is my outline looks not much different than it did last week. Two points that are essentially the same two points as we had last week. We're going to hit a couple of different nuances here and there. But for the most part, we are in the same place we were last Sunday, the same place we're going to be for a while, because I believe these are foundational truths of the Christian faith. What John is getting us to here in this letter is the baseline. Baseline Christianity, not all the bells and whistles, all the peripheral things, all the things that we like to discuss, things like that are in the book of Revelation, one of John's other books, things that we look at and we have lots of debates and discussions over. Here he's saying these are the things that we don't have any room for discussion over. This is baseline Christianity, the truths of our faith that continue to reveal themselves even in our day 2,000 years after these things were first written. So, 1 John chapter 2. Before we jump into the Scriptures this morning, let's just remind ourselves a little review from last week in case you weren't here or in case you've forgotten. 
This is written by the Apostle John, brother of James. He was the youngest of Jesus' twelve disciples. You can remember that day when he was called out of the fishing boat. Jesus said, come, you're no longer going to be a fisherman. You're now, I'm now going to make you into a fisher of men. We're going to go looking for people. And so John began to follow Jesus. And John was the only disciple that was there for all the crucial moments in the life of Christ. He was the only disciple there at the foot of the cross. When all the others had fled away, he was the first disciple to the tomb on the resurrection day. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was there when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He was there at all of the crucial moments more than any other disciple. He even reclined next to Jesus at the Last Supper. He refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. And here in this letter you find a man writing who had a deep love for Christ. Because he had begun to understand Christ's deep love for him. John writes to us about the issue of assurance. How do I know that I know that the faith that I claim to possess in Christ is real? How do I know? Is it just a hope that I have? Am I I just trusting in something but maybe it won't pan out in the end? John says, I'm writing these things so that you may know. And he gives us three tests of assurance that we're going to see time and time and time again. Again, you're going to hear the same message over and over again for the next three months because this is foundational Christianity. And the three tests of assurance that he gives are this. How do we know that we know that our faith is real? Three tests. The first one is the test of love. The test of love in the heart. That the true believer will demonstrate a love for God and a love for his fellow Christians The second test is the test of obedience. Obedience in the will. These first two tests are going to come out in today's Scripture passage. The third one will wait two weeks from now. We'll hit upon that one. But again, they're going to come up again and again and again through this book. The test of love in the heart, the test of obedience in the will, and finally the third test is the test of truth in the mind. These are the three tests that John's going to urge us to take to be assured that our faith is saving faith. And John says in his purpose statement, 1 John 5.13, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of Jesus Christ that you may know, that you may know. You could even say the idea there is that you may know that you know that you have eternal life. The knowledge he speaks about is intimate, relational, concrete knowledge. This is the most assured. He wants you to be more assured of your knowledge of who you are in Christ than anything else in your life. Your job may not be there for you tomorrow. Your friends may walk out on you this week. Your health may leave you. The things that John is writing about are concrete things of which we should be firmly assured. And so let's see what some of those things are. 1 John chapter 2. Would you stand with me as we honor God's Word this morning? 1 John chapter 2, we're going to look at the first 11 verses. The Apostle John writes these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in Him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You can be seated this morning. Father, teach us your word this morning. May we be reminded that there is only one true teacher here today, and He is the Holy Spirit. He is the one that would impress these things upon our minds that we may know the truth. That He is the one who would impress these things upon our heart that we might have a deeper love for God and for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That He is the one who would impress these things upon our will that we might walk in obedience to Your commands. Not because of some lifeless obligation, but because of a lifelong devotion to the One who gave Himself for us. But as we have sung today, may Christ be the center. May He be the source. May He be the focus of all that we say and do together today. In Jesus' name, Amen. In these verses, John speaks of two realities for the believer. Again, these are going to sound just like last week's message. The same two basic points here are the same we hit last week. The first one is this. Christ's followers will show love for God. Now again, this is not rocket science. This is not some deep thing that we're going to have to really, really have a hard time understanding. This is Christianity 101. That Christ followers, those who are followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, believers, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, will demonstrate that by showing love for God. Let's talk for a moment about the basis for this love. The basis for loving God is found in holiness. The basis for loving God is holiness. Look at the first two verses there. He says, little children, and understand when he says little children, you'll find that time and time again in this book. When he says little children, he is not demeaning us. He is not coming along, patting us on the head and saying, oh, poor little children that you are. This is a term of great endearment. This is a term of great endearment. From the beloved disciple to beloved disciples, he is saying, children of God, hear these things. Abide in these things. Walk in these things. Know that you know these things. 
My little children, I'm writing these things to you. Here's another purpose statement in this book. Leading up to chapter 5, verse 13, you'll find 12 different purpose statements that lead up to that verse. And here's one of them. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now in the NIV, if you're reading the NIV this morning, the NIV says so that you will not sin. I think the NIV is a little off there. Again, remember, remind ourselves once again this morning that the Bible was written originally in the Greek language. Uh, so all of the things that we read, unless you happen to know Greek, and I know just enough to get myself in trouble, uh, unless you know the Greek language, everything that we're reading is a translation, and there are some differences in translation. That doesn't mean that you have a Bible that's in massive error. But the original Greek gives the idea where John writes here, he's saying, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. Now why is that important? Well, first of all, understand this. John is not trying to lead us to a place where we think that we have to become sinlessly perfect in order to approach the throne of God. He's not saying you have to get to the place in your life where you will not sin any longer in order for you to be able to have a true and abiding relationship with God. What he is saying is he's saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The difference is this, not that you have to arrive at sinless perfection in order to have a relationship with God, but that you can have victory over sin in your life. Folks, this is one of the greatest truths that the Gospel proclaims to us. That we're no longer slaves to sin. As Paul writes in the book of Romans, we were once slaves to sin. In other words, I could do nothing about it. Sin was my master. And there was nothing I could do about the sin in my life. It had me captive. I was a complete and utter addict to sin. And there was no hope for me until Jesus stepped in. And when Jesus stepped in, now I no longer have to sin. That doesn't mean that I won't. Because you look at the next verse. If anyone does sin, then we go, well, there I am. I still sin. I still struggle. But understand the difference here that John is painting is the same difference that Peter paints, that Paul paints, when he says, you're no longer slaves to sin. You don't have to have sin as your master any longer. You can have victory in Jesus. We've sung that song this morning in the 8 o'clock service. How can you have victory in Jesus? What does that even mean? It means victory over sin. Victory over the death that results from sin. That only comes to you in Christ. And so while John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In other words, sin is no longer your master. It no longer has to captivate your life. You now can have victory in Christ. He's saying, but the second part of that is true as well. That if anyone does sin, and then we go, that's me. Okay, here comes the good news. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Let me talk to you about a couple things here. I may spend the biggest portion portion of the message this morning right here. John is calling us to holiness. I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. But the basis for that holiness is not within us. If I think that I'm going to become holy because I'm going to work that up within myself, I've totally missed the picture that John is painting here. If I think that according to my own will, or if I read the right self-help book, if I go to the right counselor, or if I just really get strong in myself, if I really get really powerful in my own will, that I'll be able to defeat sin, you've bought into the lie. The lie is that you can work up within yourself power over sin. 
that you as a person can defeat your own sin nature if you'll just get strong in yourself. But the Bible says the power of God is made perfect in your weakness. That means that when you understand that you are weak before Almighty God, that there is nothing you can do about your sin problem that leads to a death problem, that leads to an eternal separation from God problem, and when you begin to understand those things, then you will say what John is saying. I need an advocate. What does it mean for Christ to be our advocate? There are two beautiful pictures here that I want you to get. If you were to walk away with nothing else this morning, I want you to get these two words. Now, I know the NIV leaves out these words again. Uh, if you want to know what Bible your pastor is going to be preaching from, I'm preaching from the ESV. This is where I'm going to be because I think it's the most accurate. I'm not going to get on a soapbox here, but just know that's where I'm going to be preaching from. That's not to demean any other translation. That's just where I'm going to be. Two words here that it comes out. He says, because we have, if we sin, we have an advocate. Those who are in Christ have an advocate. What does that mean? The Greek word is the word paraclete. It literally means one who is called alongside. And the picture is this. That we, as wretched sinners... That we, as those who have been separated from God by our sin, have had one who has been called alongside of us. He has become our advocate. It's a legal term that means legal counsel. It's the same word that Jesus used in John 16 of the Holy Spirit when He said, when I depart, I will send for you a helper, a paraclete. I will send for you a comforter. But here it's the legal aspect of that word and it means one who stands as legal counsel. And the picture is this, that we, if we were to stand before the righteous judge, the holy God, and we were to seek to proclaim our case before Him, we would understand before the first words came out of our mouth that we have no case before Him. But as we talked about last week, being a sinner means that I am guilty before Almighty God. That there is nothing in me worthy of any good thing from Him. The only thing that I deserve as a sinner if I were to stand in the courts of Almighty God is His utter and lasting and eternal condemnation. His wrath for eternity. My own place in a place called hell is what I deserve. The Bible says if anyone sins, if anyone is separated from God, if anyone is in need of salvation, know this, that we have an advocate. And the advocate means that He pleads our case. So picture yourself this morning. You stand before the judgment seat, before the throne of Almighty God, and He is the righteous and holy and perfect judge just in all of His ways. He is perfectly just, unlike any judge that we have here today. But the Bible says that you do not stand alone, but that you have an advocate who pleads your case. But understand this, folks. If you just think today that you have an advocate, you have a lawyer like any other lawyer in our land today, you're missing the picture. And I want you to get this picture because when you miss the picture, you miss the Gospel. When you get the picture, you get the Gospel. Here's the picture. Every other lawyer in our world today who pleads a case, pleads 
the case based upon the merits of the one who is under judgment. Is that not true? If you were to be convicted of a crime, if you were to be sentenced, if you were to be brought before a judge and he is accusing you of a crime today, and a lawyer were to stand beside you and plead your case, he would plead your case based upon your merits. What a good person you are, that you have no history of crimes, that you couldn't have possibly done this because you weren't even there at the time, that you have a great alibi, and all the points of your case, all the evidence that he would bring forward saying this person is innocent and here's why they're innocent. He would plead your case based upon your merits. Understand this, folks. Jesus Christ is your advocate, but He does not plead your case based upon your merits because you have none. He does not plead your case based upon your merits because you have no merit to plead. You stand guilty before a holy God. You have sinned against Him, rebelled against Him. And if you were to stand before God without your advocate, your only plea would be guilty and the only sentence would be condemnation, eternal separation from God. But you have an advocate that pleads your case, not based upon your merits, but based upon His merits. When Jesus Christ pleads your case, when you trust Him by faith and you call upon Him as your advocate and God the Father calls Him alongside of you, understand the judge is not looking at you to condemn you. He has already called an advocate alongside of you. When you call Jesus by faith, you are not doing something in and of your own will. You do not claim your own advocacy. But the righteous judge calls for you an advocate that Jesus comes, stands beside you and says, yes, He's guilty. When Jesus Christ pleads the case of Andrew Rupert, He says, Andrew is guilty of sin. But He's forgiven. Now, if we were to stop there, folks, Here's what we would learn about God. God is unjust. God is the God who takes the sins of man and sweeps them under a rug. God is the God who just overlooks our sin. And that's why we need the second picture. Not only is He our advocate, the one who pleads our case based upon His own merits, but he also says in verse 2 there, He is our propitiation. Now this is one of those $20 Bible words that so often when we read it, we just want to skip right over it. It's like that, those lists of names in the Old Testament. We see these big $20 Bible words and we go, you know what, I don't know what propitiation means. That's not in my vocabulary and that's not a word I'm going to use every day or ever for that matter. So I just want to read over it. And in NIV, they actually omit that word and give you a good definition of that word. But the word is powerful. The word propitiation is a powerful word. And I would say to you this morning, when you come to these $20 Bible words, let me, give you, let me give you a point of instruction. When you come to these $20 Bible words, don't just read over them and pretend like they don't exist. Seek to find out what they mean. And you will find powerful pictures of God's love for you. So what does this word propitiation mean? It first comes from the Greek religious system. In the Greek religious system, their belief in a multitude of gods, you had Zeus and all these other gods, they were all the gods that they had, and all these temples that were built in the Greek cities. You had all these gods, and they, their understanding of the gods was this. 
the gods are constantly angry with human beings because they're divine and we're mortal. And the gods are always angry, always looking to get human beings. And the only way that you can get the favor of the gods, the gods are, in the Greek system, the gods were automatically predisposed to condemning and hurting and punishing you because you're just a mortal, worthless piece of flesh. But they wanted the favor of the gods. And so in order to gain the favor of the gods, that's where the idea of propitiation came. Propitiation means I need the favor of God. And so what would they do? In the Greek system, what they would do was they determined that in order to gain the favor of the gods, they had to make a sacrifice to show themselves worthy of this propitiation. They had to make a propitiation in order to show themselves worthy of the favor of God. And so they made sacrifices. They made grain sacrifices, taking the best of their crops and burning them in the fire to their gods. They made wine sacrifices, drink offerings, where they would take the best of the fruit of the vine, the wine that they had made, and they would pour it out on the altars of their gods. They made sacrifices of animals. And yes, many even made sacrifices of their own children. And we cringe from that. What kind of crazy people take their own flesh and blood and slit their throats and burn their bodies in the flames to gain the favor of some God? But they were doing it. And even the people of Israel in the Old Testament fell prey to the worship of gods like Molech where there was a giant altar made on which they would burn their own children as a sacrifice to Molech, seeking his favor because they believed in their minds we have to have... They got this part right. They believed in their minds we've got to have the favor of God. But they missed the path altogether. And I would say to you this morning, if you think there is any sacrifice that you could bring that would gain you the favor of God, understand you're not on the right path this morning. That is not the Gospel path. That is not the path of the good news of Jesus Christ. If you think that there is anything that you could do to merit the favor of God, if you think that you could stand before God and plead your own case, if you could stand before God as we talked about last week and put your life on the scale and say, God, look at all the good things that I've done. Understand that He would say to you this morning, your righteousness is like filthy rags before Me. There is nothing in you that merits anything good from Him. And if we were to stop there this morning, we all leave here without hope. But He is our propitiation. You see, the God of the universe was not waiting for sinful people to make a sacrifice that would appease His wrath. The God of the universe appeased His own wrath in His own Son. You need not sacrifice your own son, your own daughter. He sacrificed His for you. Do you see it? The message of propitiation is that your sins are taken care of. You do have favor with God if you're in Christ. But it's not because you've done anything right. You've done everything wrong. It's not because you've merited His favor. You've merited nothing but His wrath. In Romans 8.1 it says, those are in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is nothing that we need fear from God if we're in Christ. 
He is our propitiation. So you put these two things together. And as our advocate, He pleads our case. And as our propitiation, He takes our punishment. And what's left at that point? Well, let me show you what's left. We've seen the basis for loving God. The basis is what Christ has done. He's made the pathway to holiness open to us by His death on the cross and His resurrection. The life that He offers to us by faith. But what's the proof? What's the proof of our loving God? How do we know that the love we claim to have for God is real? It shows in our obedience. Again, this is Christianity 101, folks. This is not rocket science. This is simply the Gospel. Verses 3-6. through I love verse 3. It says there, And by this we know that we have come to know Him. Literally, we know that we know. How do we know that we know? That we're in Him. We keep His commandments. Now understand, don't get the wrong idea here. Remind yourself of Ephesians chapter 2. It's by grace we're saved through faith. It's not of works. In other words, there is nothing that you could do. There is no amount of commandments that you could keep. The truth of the commandments, the truth of the God's law is this. The law reminds us of our need for Christ. But once you've come to Christ, once you've, your heart of stone has been taken out of your body and you've been given a heart of flesh, once your heart now beats for Christ, then you'll begin to see that now you can do what you could never do before. Now you can keep the commandments of God in a way that you could never do before. Now you're no longer a slave to sin. Now you become a slave to righteousness. Now you're no longer a son of disobedience. Now you're a son of righteousness and obedience. Why? Because you're such a good person? Because you've just welled up in yourself the giant sea of the super-Christian on your chest? No! Because He has worked on your behalf. And so you obey God now because you can and now because you want to and now because you love Him. You demonstrate obedience to His commands because you're His. Jesus said in John 14, if you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. It's pretty simple. But this is the first piece of evidence here that He wants us to see. Secondly, the second reality for the believer this morning, how do I know that I know that I know that I'm in Christ? Where do I find that assurance? Number two, Christ followers not only show love for God, but they show love for one another. Verses 7-11. through Christ followers show love for one another. Just like there was a basis for our love for God, there's also a basis for our loving one another in the body of Christ. What is that basis? Look at verses 7 and 8. It stems from what we just talked about. The basis for loving others is God's command. Why do we love one another? We talked about last week how there's a reality for us as Christians that loving God seems easy to a certain extent. Because God is perfect and he's holy and we know that we love him because he first loved us and we sometimes we have the wrong mental picture of god we forget that he's also a god of wrath and a god of justice sometimes we want to set those things aside but we need to understand we need to hold those things in tandem with one another 
But loving God, the vertical relationship in our lives as Christians sometimes seems the easy part. And truthfully, most of the time that is the easy part. But then comes the twin. John basically here is giving us an exposition uh, of greater expansion on the great commandment. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in all the law? He said, what is it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are like the Siamese twins of the Christian life. They share the same heart and are inseparable in every way. Love God and love people. Well, love God seems to come fairly easily. We love to come in and show love for God, to worship Him, to sing our hearts out, to read His Word. We love love to love on God, but then comes the one that's like it, the Siamese twin. And this Siamese twin's not quite as pretty as its twin. Love people. That's a little harder. What about that guy that just grates on my last nerve? I mean, just being with him in the same room makes my skin want to crawl. What about that person that I never get along with, that I have debated for years and we don't see eye to eye on anything? If I say it's black, he says it's white. If I say it's up, he says it's down. And I just we just clash like this. What about that family member that I've not spoken to for years? Because something happened way back when. Maybe I remember what it was. Maybe I don't. The truth of the matter is, whether I remember it or not, it's probably not really all that important in this moment. What about those folks that a pastor friend of mine calls EGRs, extra grace required? Anybody got any EGRs in your life? Okay. Don't be pointing them out here. Okay. They may be sitting here in the room. One of you is on this side and one of you is on the other. I don't know how that works. Understand what John is saying here. He's saying to us that if we're following Jesus Christ, if we are truly knowing the faith, in reality, assurance, knowing that we know, it will produce not only that vertical dimension of love for God, that love relationship, but it will also produce in us this horizontal relationship, which is not easy. I would truly say to you this morning, loving God in the way that the Scriptures indicate is not easy either. We've just kind of tricked ourselves a little bit into thinking that's the easy part. But the horizontal part is definitely difficult. What about loving those that are pretty unlovable? And that doesn't mean just those outside of these walls. Sometimes we find ourselves in the place where there are people right here in our own church, in our own families, in our own intimate relationships that are just plain hard to love. And what's the basis for our loving them? The commandment of God. Now John sounds like he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth here. He says, this is no new commandment. And then a verse later he says, But it is a new commandment. And I read that the first time and I thought, John, would you make up your mind? Is it a new commandment or is it not? How can it be not a new commandment and a new commandment all at the same time? Well, first of all, we understand it's an old commandment that's found in the law. Where did the idea of loving God and loving people come from? You go all the way back to the Old Testament. Jesus was not teaching something here that was new to Him. He was referring, when he was asked what's the greatest commandment, he quoted explicitly from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus. 
And the command to love one another goes all the way back to Leviticus. Those first five books of the Bible, those foundational books that teach us the very foundations of our faith as Christians are found way back there in Genesis to Deuteronomy. This is an old commandment way back when it was given. Given through Moses. Given to the people of God. But it's also a new commandment. Old is the new new in this way. It's a new commandment because now it's in the light. See, in the Old Testament days, the reality was that they didn't clearly see everything that God wanted them to see. It was veiled. And they would read these commandments and they would go, well, okay, we know that God's called us to love one another, but we really can't do that. I mean, look at the Israelites. Not only did they war with everybody else, but they were constantly at war with one another. I mean, there's, a one, there's one episode that happens in their lives when they, they basically erase one of the tribes. The Benjamites are basically wiped from the face of the earth by their own people. They were, there was this constant infighting and animosity. They did not love one another. And the reality was for them, this was a commandment that they could not keep. Read the Old Testament, you'll see it. They didn't keep it. Whether they could or could not, they did not keep the commandment to love one another. So what am I going, where am I going with this? Here's how old is the new new. That which was from the beginning. You go all the way back in the Old Testament, you see this command to love one another, to sacrifice for one another, to set the needs of another above my own. You see self-sacrificing love from the very beginning. Scripture. But let me just say this to us folks. Apart from Christ, we have no capacity for this type of love. You may think you do. But what about when it comes down to the EGRs? To those that are difficult to love? I'm not just asking you these questions this morning. I'm asking myself these questions. What about when it comes down to those for whom love seems impossible? How can I love one who's hurt me so deeply? Because the God who loves us commands us to. And what will be the proof of that love? Verses 9 through 11. The proof of loving others is shown in walking in the light. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him... There's no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Folks, our world says that love is blind, but the Scriptures say that love sees clearly. It is hate that is blind. And when we don't have love for our, our brothers and sisters, that we walk, we prove to ourselves that we walk in the darkness and we stumble and we fall but there still remains grace for us. And when we see the brokenness of our relationships, 
with one another. We understand our need for grace because it's a constant reminder of the fact that our relationship with God was inseparably, it was broken in such a way that it could never be repaired. And then Jesus came. And He became our advocate. And He became our propitiation. He bound up that which was broken, healed that which had no hope. So based upon this, we can love one another. And Jesus said, by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what does it mean to walk in the light? There's an old wives' tale about the word sincere. It's kind of ironic that it's an old wives' tale. It's not really true, but I'm going to tell you the story anyway just because while the story's not true, there's truth in the story. The old wives' tale goes like this, that the word sincere comes from the Latin sin, meaning without. That's what the Latin word sin means, without. And sere, which means wax. Okay, so the old wives' tale says that sincere means literally without wax. And it's a reference back to what was actually a practice in the Greek days, back in the, in the, in the Greek and Roman times. There was a practice by sculptors. Okay, and what they would do, if you were a sculptor, most sculptors would take this piece of stone and they would spend years perfecting it. And that's why we have sculptures like the sculpture of David, which is just unbelievably breathtaking. Or so I've been told for those who have been there and actually seen it. But there were some second-rate sculptors who weren't quite as good as the Michelangelos and the others of their day. And what they would do was they would make their sculptures but they weren't very good at their craft, and so there would be cracks left, imperfections left. And so what they would do is they would take wax, and they would melt it on wax, and they would take this melted wax, and they would press it in to the cracks and smooth it out. They would press it into the imperfections and smooth it out so that it would look like their work was as perfect as the great sculptors of their day. But the problem that would happen is that when they would take it from their workshop out into the marketplace, out into the streets to be shown, to be sold at auction, when they would take their work out, the sun would hit it, and you can imagine what would happen. The wax would begin to melt, and all the imperfections would be shown for what they are. When it was brought into the light, all the cracks would be revealed. Now the truth of the matter is that is not the origin of the word sincere, but it does give us a great truth. Walking in the light means that when I come before Almighty God, I recognize that my life is not without cracks. That I am not perfect. And that I have often tried to conceal my own imperfections. A little wax here and there to cover up the sin in my life. Folks, let's be reminded of 1 John 1 9 that we heard last week. If we will confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess our sins means that I say the same thing about my sin that God does, that I am guilty, that I've got cracks, 
that I am not perfect, that I am not worthy, not even to be sold for a penny, that I am utterly worthless, that really all I am is a bunch of wax. But that God takes the whole ball of wax of my life. He's taken all of my sin and He's placed it upon His righteous Son, the righteous One. Our Advocate and our propitiation took our sin upon Himself. He took the whole ball of wax that's your life. All your cracks and all your imperfections so that you could walk in the light with Him. And folks, I know sometimes when God shines the light of His holiness upon your life, it is extremely painful. We don't want others to see our cracks. We don't want God to see our cracks. So like Adam and Eve, we hide. Like Cain, we deny what we've done to our brothers. I encourage you this morning, come to the light. Though it may be painful to confess your sins before God, I can promise you this, it will be nowhere near as painful as what it will mean in the last day when you stand before the Holy God and you have no advocate. You come and you try to plead your own case, but the first words won't get out of your mouth. You have no propitiation. Your sins are laid bare before everyone. And you see in that day that you have no case and the only thing that you are worthy of is condemnation. But if you would come this day, if you would understand this day that you have a Savior and His name is Jesus Christ, that if you would trust Him by faith, that He both wants to be your advocate, to be called alongside you, to stand beside you, and to say, yes, yes, guilty but forgiven. Because I was the propitiation. I covered the sins of this one. That's the Gospel, folks. So I bid you come this morning. If you, not just your neighbor, not just those who are more sinful than you or less sinful than you, if you will confess your sins, He is faithful. He is just. And He has promised to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That you might be without wax. And truly, that one day you will be without sin. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we have said much and there is much, much more that could be said. These beautiful pictures of what You have done for us in Christ. Not an angry God looking to condemn us, but a loving God looking for a way to save us. that You are perfectly just and that Your wrath would have remained upon us except for the fact that we have an Advocate who pleads our case based upon His own merits. And we have that same One who is a propitiation, the One who has covered, taken away our punishment, taken away our sin, taken away the death that we deserved. And all this is made possible for us because of Him. Lord, I pray for those seated here this morning who have not trusted Christ, 
who have not called upon their advocate, have not called upon their propitiation. Lord, would You remind us of Your promise this morning that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Sins forgiven. Death removed. Hell escaped. Not because we're good people, but because we have a holy God who has made a way for sinful men and women to come before Him in the way, the way, the truth, and the life is Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that faith would spring up this morning from stone-cold hearts, from blind eyes, from deaf ears would come faith. And that life would be the result. Not just life for the here and now, though it will be that, but life for eternity. As we will look to the One who is the center, who is the source, who is our advocate and propitiation, and for all eternity, we will proclaim worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, worthy to receive honor and glory and power and dominion forever and ever. We will take our place as the children of God because of what the Son of God did for us. Bring us to faith, Lord. Heal our broken relationships. Heal our hearts. And do the work that only You can do here among us this morning. We pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.